Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. The U.S. bishops are meeting behind closed doors today, but there is certainly plenty to talk about yesterday. They elected several new important positions. They advanced the cause of three women being considered for sainthood. Join me right now to talk about the bishop's work in Baltimore. We've got Dr. Matthew Bunsen, executive editor and Washington bureau chief for EWTN News and a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Matthew, good to have you here again. Always good to be with you. Has it been uh, a, a worthwhile week? Oh, I think so. Uh, all bishops' meetings tend to be very interesting, uh, even especially to those of us who uh, we don't obsess about it, but uh, we, we certainly uh, pay a great deal of attention <laughs> sure, to what the bishops sure. are doing. Yeah. If for no other reason than the, these meetings, however, whatever the official status of any Episcopal conference might be, uh, they are important in showing us the direction, the tenor of where the bishops are as a body yeah. of the shepherds in the United States and, and what their priorities are. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's very worthwhile. Uh, to kind of t- see what they're, they're, they are, in fact, again, let's not forget, they are successors of the apostles. They gather together in order to uh, discern direction uh, for the church in a particular region, and that's what they've been doing in Baltimore all week. Before we go to the that news, though, I, I need to ask you about this story uh, out of Cuba. Uh, Adrian Martinez-Cadiz, a correspondent for EWTN News, has been called in for a second interrogation uh, by the Cuban police. What, do you, what can you tell me about that? Well, that's right. Uh, so he uh, was uh, initially summoned uh, by the what's called the National Revolutionary Police. Uh, that sort of speaks for itself, uh, which is the police arm of what we can say is a Cuban dictatorship. Yeah. And at the end of uh, that initial process uh, last month, uh, he was actually fined uh, 3,000 pesos, which is about $125. Now, that may not sound like much uh, to anyone in the United States. In fact, that is a very significant amount of money uh, as uh, that type of a a fine would go. Uh And part of it was as a result of what they said anyway, was criticizing the Cuban regime. And his treatment that that first interrogation was um, unpleasant. Uh, I would say that uh, he was yelled at and other things. Uh, But now we have him once again uh, being summoned uh, for interrogation. And I think a lot of this is intimidation. A lot of it is just real worry on the part of the Cuban regime uh, that an organization, an entity like EWTN News, poses real threats to them because, A, we speak the truth, but also we are expressing uh, the the teachings of the church on the dignity of the human person and key things like uh, religious freedom, religious liberty. You know, I mean, his reporting there has not been um, directly intended to undermine the regime. He's simply reporting on conditions. Is that right? That's correct, uh, as any reporter would. Yeah. And uh, in that sense, too, I think what we're seeing is an effort, again, to intimidate, uh, but also to warn off, to say, we do not like what you have to say, uh, and we don't like the fact uh, that word of what's – the conditions in Cuba uh, are known now globally. And uh, for them, uh, things need to be done in secret. They need to keep the regime – Uh, in control of every aspect of life uh, as best they can. Now, we have certainly seen over the last years that they have been uh, rather unsuccessful in that. Yeah. So, I mean, so if he reports that there's a lack of uh, 
a week uh, to produce uh, communion hosts, that's a threat. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wild. That's wild. Well, I mean, we're seeing similar things in other uh, Latin American countries and in, in places like Venezuela, mm-hmm. uh, where the Maduro regime uh, is a, a staunch enemy of the church. We especially you and I have talked on a number of occasions about in Nicaragua, yeah. uh, the, the regime and we can call it a regime of Daniel Ortega right. and his wife, who's now vice president of the country, uh, are also real enemies of the church because we defend, uh, ironically, uh, the poor, uh, the marginalized, yeah. the very ones that these communist regimes are supposedly championing. Yeah, no, no, very true. Uh, let's uh, go back to Baltimore here and take a look at the bishops. Um, how, what, what would you say was the most consequential action of the bishops this week? Yeah, I think uh, there were two. Uh, the, the first was... The one that's the highest profile, which is the election of uh, Archbishop Timothy Brolio, Mm -hmm. uh, the Archbishop of the Military Archdiocese, as their new president, uh, the election of uh, Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore as a vice president. Uh, And also, I would throw in uh, the election of uh, Archbishop Paul Coakley of Oklahoma uh, as the secretary. Why? Because that positions him in three years. We can talk more about that to become president. Mm -hmm. Those elections, I think, are they they set a tone. They they say something about the conference and also about the leadership of the conference, as well as some of these other bishops elect. Uh, to be honest, I think one of the other major uh, discussions, and I had circled this uh, before uh, the, the meeting, and you and I had talked about that, was the decision about what to do with forming consciences for faithful yeah, citizenship. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that tells us uh, the concerns of the bishops as we're heading now into the 2024 election. And how they handled it on the floor was one thing, and now what the next steps are will be another. So I would really look at that as uh, a key uh, for understanding where the bishops are as a body. So on the <clears throat> on uh, forming consciences, though, they punted, didn't they? They did. Uh, but in a, in a way that I thought was... Um, trying to build a, a kind of consensus for them. Okay. Essentially what they were proposed, they put before the bishops several possible options uh, for how to deal with uh, the fact that this is a document that was originally posted and released in 2007. So now, it, in fairness, it's received a number of updates and a few revisions since then. Mm-hmm. But this is still a document that really is uh, built uh, in the pontificate of John Paul II and into Benedict XVI. Now, I would say that it is a fair assessment that uh, the papal magisterium, the the papal teachings of of Pope Francis, aren't necessarily profoundly present in this document. But the point has been made – uh, that so many of the teachings of the church, especially in the area of Catholic social teachings, uh, as expressed by Pope Francis, are actually in this document and did anticipate many of the things that Pope Francis has said and done. So we have to be careful about saying that this is a document that does not reflect Pope Francis, because Pope Francis on so many occasions does actually ground what he says sure. uh, in Catholic social teaching. But uh, – what to do with it then uh, as we're heading into what is going to be, we know, a contentious and bitter 2024 campaign. So among the options were to reissue it with a new introductory note. Uh, another is to reissue it without revisions, um, 
but with a new introductory note that sort of incorporates so many of the papal teachings, which is almost impossible to do within the time frame they have, to summarize it uh, with sort of bulletin insert length documents that incorporate some of the recent teachings or replace it with a bulletin insert length document. What the bishops ended up actually getting uh, was and voted on was a fifth option, a kind of hybrid document, which was to reissue faithful citizenship with a new note and then develop a variety of resources across different forms of media to help people make the contents more accessible and easy to digest and customizable. And then to begin this what has to be a very lengthy process of revising and reexamining the guide at the end of the 2024 election. Okay. Uh, you know, at, at first blush, I, I think to myself, this, this is supposed to give uh, guidance yes. uh, to Catholics. Uh, when they, It's not a voting guide per se, but, I mean, it's meant to help them form their consciences as they go to vote. Um, by postponing it until after the election, uh, is I guess is it is it a dead letter now? Is I guess what I'm asking. <laughs> well, that's uh, the the one unfortunate aspect, in, in some ways, of the conversation because it gives the sense, uh, it implies uh, that this is an out of date document, right? That is no longer relevant. When, it, as several bishops pointed out, I, I, I think in particular of um, Bishop. Uh, Let's see, of, uh, well, Cardinal DiNardo, for one, was a big defender of it, but Bishop Joseph Strickland of, of Tyler, Texas, said that it, it remains a solid document. Sure. And, and Cardinal DiNardo was also saying that uh, it, it's a good, basic document. So I think there's um, an injustice to faithful citizenship if we suggest that somehow, well, because it was released in 2007, uh, it's no longer relevant or, or of any value. Okay. When, in fact, if, if we are articulating, as this document does, the clear teachings of the church, it will be valuable 300 years from yeah. now. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. <laughs> and not just two. Yeah, well, this is, so they're actually going to broaden the, they're going to ease access to the document by having a variety of other media involved. Uh, is that? Yeah, I, I think that would, that's exactly right. Now, what that entails uh, is going to be quite a bit of uh, work between now and the next bishops, the major bishop meeting in November. So basically in 2023, uh, I, I would expect that we're going to be looking at the, the bishops reviewing uh, all of the options as we head into the 2024 sure. campaign. Okay. Uh, and what all of those are going to look like, uh, multimedia access, uh, what sort of digestible social media content there's going to be. I think one area that's going to be a source of possible contention, and this will be playing out, I suspect, uh, behind closed doors uh, and in the various meetings leading up to the, the session next November, uh, is A, who's drafting it? What does that content look like? How much of this is going to diverge or, or be different uh, from the text of faithful citizenship as they try right. uh, to incorporate uh, some of the content from Pope Francis. So I think uh, there's a fear uh, from some, I know, that this could lead to not mischief, but to a real break between the document itself and what's being posted and yeah. what's going out in social media. But the other would be how we go about having that continuity uh, that does exist 
uh, between faithful citizenship and what Pope Francis said. Yeah. yeah. Uh, while still being faithful, no pun intended, uh, to the original intent of the document. Let, let's not forget the point of this is to help Catholics and people of goodwill to form their consciences as they move into an election cycle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have they chose members of the committee that will be doing the revision? No, not okay. that I'm aware of. All right. Uh, let me uh, ask us, well, we'll just, uh, if you hold it there, we'll take a break and come back. And I want to ask if the question of the German bishops uh, came up or this, what if they dealt with the synod on synodality. And uh, so hold it there, uh, Matthew. We'll be right back. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, we're taking a look at the bishops' work in Baltimore this week at their annual uh, fall gathering. I'm Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We're uh, looking over the work of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops this week in Baltimore, their annual fall gathering. And uh, as it turns out, the German bishops met with Pope Francis earlier today, I understand. And I'm wondering, Matthew, if the U.S. bishops had anything to say about the German uh, synodal process and then the broader uh, synodal way uh, the synod on synodality that uh, we're expecting. No, there was uh, almost no public mention at all uh, of the uh, now, I would argue, scandalous process that's been underway for years uh, in the synodal way in Germany. Uh, there was a discussion on the synod on synodality, uh, and part of that, I thought, was revealing in that they were discussing and had an update on the process. Uh, we are now, as uh, we have talked on a number of occasions, uh, in the continental phase of the synod. In other words, we've had these different uh, diocesan phases and then the, the national phases. Now we're in the continental phase. And when we're talking about North America, we're talking about Mexico, we're talking about the United States, and we're talking about Canada. And there will be 10 sessions in this continental phase, uh, all virtual, uh, three in Spanish, two in French, and five in English as we inch toward this kind of uh, synthesizing of the syntheses of the summaries uh, of everything that's been <laughs> happening. And then it gets handed off uh, to Rome in March in anticipation of um, what's called the Instrumentum Laboris, which is the blueprint uh, for the, the Synod of Bishops in 2023 and then uh, leading into the concluding one in Rome in 2024. Okay. So this is, um, this is something which, I guess, when we talk about the, um, the upcoming Synod on Synodality, what kind, is there going to be a canvassing of Catholic attitudes prior to that synod? Well, yes, and part of it is uh, continuing to find ways to listen to all Catholics. And this has been itself a source of great, uh, I wouldn't say controversy, but a lot of discussion because based on the estimates, barely 1% of Catholics in the universal church have been heard in this process. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you can make the argument that uh, that's not surprising given how far flung the church is and, and how difficult it is, but it's still an, an abysmally low number. 
And then the question is asked, of that 1%, who are those actual voices? Yeah. What has been the process beneath this process uh, for those who were heard on a parish level and others? I mean, it, it's been a question on the parish level especially, uh, who they're listening to, uh, parish by parish by parish, and then how, how are the dioceses uh, assembling all of this data and then submitting it to Rome? And, and there were quite a few questions about how this working document uh, for the continental phase was written. You had a group that met in Frascati just outside of Rome and, and put together cherry-picking the responses of different Episcopal conferences from around the world to build uh, what I think many found an eye-raising or eyebrow-raising uh, document uh, that quoted extensively the, the concerns apparently relating to the ordination of women, uh, the married priesthood, uh, and outreach so-called uh, to the LGBTQ community, as they put it. Yeah. So there are still serious concerns about the whole process here in much the same way that we had so many concerns leading into the Amazonian Senate. And, and in some cases, those concerns were validated in how that unfolded in Rome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, something that doesn't get talked about, but it, it puzzles me because it seems obvious. All the surveying that gets done on Catholics uh, indicate, so, say politics, indicates that Catholics generally vote alongside Americans generally. But when you distinguish between Catholics who are weekly mass attenders or somehow engage in other, regularly engage in other forms of spiritual growth and development, Bible studies, prayer groups, they have, they're different. They come yes. up with a different approach to life, a different approach to citizenship, a different approach to elections. And this has got to count for something, it, it seems to me, uh, in this uh, attempt to, to listen to the Catholic voice. Well, you're absolutely right. And our polling, uh, the EWTN News uh, Real Clear Opinion Research polling, found precisely what you're saying, that uh, those who attend Mass on a daily or weekly basis are drastically different uh, in their approach, not just to, to how they vote, but uh, to so many of the core yeah. issues, cultural issues of our time, uh, than those who go to Mass only yearly or never or just once or twice a year. Yeah. It, it is a completely, vastly different spectrum. And the question that's often asked is, uh, in this synodal process, that yes, we are paying a lot of attention as part of these listening sessions to Catholics who disagree with the teachings of the Church. This is also the group that uh, does not believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, that never goes to confession. And I don't mean this in a, in a way of judging them. What I mean is that this is a group that feels in some ways completely removed from the Church. Yeah. Now, yeah. it's a fair question. How do we get them back to the Church? How do we bring them into a, a life of fullness sure. of the faith? But does that also come at the expense of hearing the concerns of those Catholics who are still there every day, every week in the pews, who serve in the parishes, who oftentimes feel in this whole process that they're not being heard or they're being excluded at the expense of this outreach uh, to those Catholics who want changes in the teachings of the Church 
from those who are there every day trying to live those teachings of the right. church. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Well, it'll be interesting to see if that, when all said and done, whether that distinction is recognized in some way uh, as this process goes Well, so to, to get to the, the, the discussion with the bishops, uh, part of it was very process-oriented. Uh, one of the concerns that was raised, for example, is why these are all virtual. And uh, Cardinal Tobin uh, of Newark, who is a member of the Council for the Synod, uh, expressed uh, not just dis- not really dismay, but that he simply made the point uh, that these these meetings are virtual, and that in other places around uh, the globe uh, for the continental phase, they're in person. Now there are various reasons for all of this being done. But it tells you, too, that the, the bishops are focused on the process of this. But I can tell you also from discussions with a number of bishops that there's real concern about the content as well. Okay. Okay. Let me ask about the, um, the three women who uh, were given uh, advance uh, towards their canonization. Uh, tell me a little bit about them. Yeah, so this is a process that's always uh, considered necessary uh, and really important uh, in asking for the support of the body of bishops in a country, in this case the USCCB, uh, to advance on a local level the causes of beatification and uh, for several local causes. Now, that's significant because in this case, all three are women, all three are relative uh, to our own era. The one that I find especially interesting uh, is Michelle Dupont, uh, who is, uh, uh, died, in, I think, in 2014 at the age of 31. She was a young campus missionary who worked with FOCUS, you know, the Fellowship of Catholic uh, University Students, yeah. uh, and died of cancer. Another one, uh, Cora Louise Evans, uh, was a mother and uh, a convert and also a mystic. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third, Mother Margaret Mary Healy Murphy, uh, was someone who focused uh, her great concerns in Texas on African Americans and the poor and was uh, one of the first founders of a community for women religious uh, in Texas. So yeah. all three really very interesting people. Yeah, very interesting stories. And it's an opportunity for us to appreciate uh, holiness in our time, I, I think especially of Michelle Dupont, uh, who, as I said, was a campus missionary for six years and then was just the director of adult faith formation for the Diocese of Bismarck you know, in yeah. North Dakota. So this is a contemporary, in many ways, like Carlo Acutis. Right. right. Uh, as I said, she died at the age of 31, I think it was in, in 2015. And this is somebody who can relate to almost any young person today. And a reminder that saints not only are um, contemporaries of ours, so sanctity is still here today. Yeah. It's still relevant today. But also that young people, those who are young, are also called to holiness and can be saints. Yes. 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 You don't have to get old. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, would have to get old to be holy. So. <laughs> In some cases, I suspect it's an impediment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, the new uh, USCCB president, um, Timothy Bro- uh, Bro- uh, Brolio, excuse me, yes. uh, <clears throat> from the U.S. Archdiocese of the Military Services, uh, did he have make any statements, uh, you know, worth informing people of? 
Yeah, he did. Uh, there was a, a presser right after his uh, election, uh, as is customary for the conference at the end of the day. Uh, they used to have more formal press conferences, but they've really adjusted now to more of a scrum style, uh, which is a little more casual uh, yeah. than it used to be, but still very enlightening. And, and I think it gives um, reporters an opportunity to meet with different bishops. So Archbishop Brolio uh, met with uh, reporters in the press room. Uh, he was peppered with, uh, I think, what I would describe personally as a lot of hostile questions from especially some of the progressive Catholic media uh, who greeted his uh, election as some sort of a repudiation or a snarling hatred of Pope Francis, which is simply <laughs> highly predictable but yeah. also highly incorrect. And one of the questions he was asked, uh, in fact, I think by Catherine Hadro of EWTN News, uh, the very first question out of the box is, we just had the, the end of the tenure what I would argue is a remarkable tenure of Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles as president of the conference. And it was a time of three years of real bitter polarization of the COVID crisis, of the 2020 election, of division, it seems, both in the country and in the church. And the question that she asked him was, as president, what are you going to do to deal with that, uh, picking up from the time of Archbishop Gomez and and Archbishop Brolio said really to try to continue the work of Archbishop Gomez uh, in unifying the bishops, but then also having the church as a voice of, of unity uh, and clarity uh, in the coming years. And I, I think that's something that we can very much expect from Archbishop Brolio. Um, well, that's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear the music coming up under us. Unfortunately, we have to call it quits. But Matthew, thanks. A wonderful reporting for us. A joy to be with you, as yeah. always. We'll talk again. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, again in Baltimore, attending the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops annual fall meeting and keeping us informed throughout this week. I'm Al Cresta.